God has called us to serve. In this season of fasting and prayer, we'll be exploring ways to connect with God through serving each other and our community. To learn more about LifePoint Church, visit us online at lifepointpeople.com. Welcome to LifePoint. We're going to finish up the series Fast, Pray, Serve here today with a sermon titled, You Make Me Sick, But I Love You Anyway, right? You Make Me Sick but I love you. And you'll see why in a minute here, why we're titling it that. We're going to be in Revelation chapter 3 if you want to grab a Bible. If you didn't bring one, there's one underneath the seat in front of you. If you don't have one, take it home with you. That's our gift to you. Mark it up, read it, and let it be yours. Revelation 3. Why are we going to close in Revelation? Isn't Revelation all future forecast and end of the world type stuff and horses and dragons and babies eating dragons or the other way around? Um, It is but there's also some really good stuff to some churches in the beginning. And, and if we're going to be a church that serves, if we just spent three weeks fasting, whether you did or not, the purpose of it was to know the Lord, was to hear His voice. And I'll tell you, all of that will mean nothing if we're like the church in Laodicea. All of it will have been pointless. All of your suffering, all of your, oh, I'd love to eat sugar or whatever you fasted from, will have been pointless if we're like the church in Laodicea. And unfortunately, unfortunately, I'm here to break the suspense, we are. We are. And you're going to see why uh, it's an encouraging morning, but it's also, like I said, a bit of a come to Jesus morning. So let's jump into the scripture. It's fun scripture, it's revelation. It's Jesus himself speaking to John. And then this is what's really cool. And this is something the Lord just showed me uh, in the last couple weeks studying for this. You know, whenever we hear Jesus talk about uh, he's he's rebuking the Christians, we'd say, right? Or the religious people. It's It's the Pharisees and the Sadducees, right? It was the religious people of the days, the Jewish people. What's really neat here is he's no longer rebuking them. Here. You catch this? In the church of Laodicea, he is now rebuking the Christians, the pastors, the leaders, the church, his church, which is carrying forward the message of Christ on the cross. Now we get a real rebuke. So we don't longer have to translate and be like, well, he's talking to the religion. No, no, he's talking to us. That here we are about 100 years or less after Jesus has left the earth and the church has already gotten to this place. So let's just jump in and read it. To the angel of the church in Laodicea, write. These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creations. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot or cold, I'm about to spit, spew, vomit you out of my mouth whatever translation you have. You say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, pitiful, blind, poor, and naked. Jesus is not holding any punches to the church of Laodicea. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich, white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness, and a salve to put on your eyes. So you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and I discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him 
and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I overcame and sat down with my Father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. So this is the seventh letter of Jesus Christ to these churches. It's the seventh letter of seven. And he's speaking through the Apostle John. And what's unique about this letter is that in the first six letters, Jesus uses a negative sandwich. Remember we talked about that last week? He says, hey church, hey Philadelphia, this is what you're doing really good. Really well, sorry English major. Here's what you're doing really well. Here's what you're not doing very well. Right? There was positive, and then there was what they needed to fix. The church in Laodicea, all negative, all bad, all pitiful, wretched, disgusting, poor, naked, blind, dumb, name it. But I love you anyway. He actually starts out with, you are neither hot nor cold. I wish you would pick one. Wait, you wish I would pick cold? Yeah, because when you're lukewarm, you make me nauseous, and I will vomit you out of my mouth. You can't tell me that's some of the most harshest literature you've ever seen. And this is God to his creation, right? So we got to get to the heart of this. We got to get to the heart of what in the world would make God say, I will spit you out of my mouth if you are lukewarm. And then what does it mean to be lukewarm? So here we're going to see Jesus. He's going to put on a doctor's jacket, metaphorically speaking. He's going to come in and he's going to assess the situation. He's going to look at the symptoms. He's going to prescribe Uh, 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 treatment he's going to draw us back to him he says in the middle of the text you notice how it says you have to get from me I salve the city of Laodicea was a medical center there were many doctors there in a famous medical center and a school and they produced a lot of medicines including a medical eye uh, ointment that could help people with problems with their vision he says but here's what you don't understand you are sick and I have a medicine for you. This is, this is what he's writing. So we're going to take a look and see what the spiritual condition is and what the remedies are. Here we go. So what is the symptoms? Right? For assessing this from a doctor's point of view, what are the symptoms? In verse 15 through 16, he says, I know your deeds that you are neither cold nor hot. Who here has been sick within the last month or so with all this stuff going around? Yeah, if you're sitting next to the person whose hands wet up, you can scoot over a chair. I get it. Now nah, you've probably had it or you already have it. It's crazy, right? It's crazy how much a sickness is. And here's the thing with the sickness. What happens? You're usually hot, and then you immediately go to chills, right? Isn't that the worst feeling? You're neither hot, you're, you're, neither, you're not lukewarm. You'd actually like to just be lukewarm, but you're hot or cold. This isn't the problem going on here. Christ says you are neither hot nor cold, you are lukewarm. So what is a lukewarm? What's it mean to be spiritually lukewarm? And we'll get to the remedies of what this looks like, but I want to talk about this. And he says, you have no zeal. The Greek word there is zealos. It's the word we get the word zealous from. What's it mean to be zealous? It means to be earnest, to be committed, to be passionate about something, right? If I'm a zealous preacher, then I should be committed to it. I should be passionate about what I'm preaching. Now, here's what's really interesting. The word zealous throughout the New Testament is used for two meanings. It's used to mean zealous, but it's also used to mean jealous. And you say, now wait a minute. Zealous is used in a positive connotation. He's earnest. He's zealous for something. 
And jealousy or jealous is used in a negative. It's the green-eyed monster. It's the uh, part of us that looks at what other people have and say, why don't I have what they have? It means you're jealous of them. We can be jealous of our spouse, jealous of their time, right? Oh, I didn't, I didn't like him. He was always so jealous of me, right? I'm sorry, that's just what came to mind when I thought of jealous. That's my best valley girl interpretation. We can be jealous, but even in that kind of jealousy, here's the thing. Jealousy in and of itself is not evil, but who are you jealous for? You see, when we're jealous, we are jealous for ourselves. I wish I had Dave's shirt. I wish I had Casey's body. No, I don't. I, I wish I had... It's two weeks in a row, Casey. You know I love you, man. If I, if I make fun of you two weeks in a row, you know I love you. Um, remember that thing about people packing? I should be careful. Uh, I'm jealous for what others have. I'm jealous for their time, their money, their position. But what if you are jealous for another person's well-being? What does that mean? That means I am earnest, I am committed to their well-being. I should be jealous for my wife. I should be jealous that she is experiencing the best life that she can, that her time is being used wisely, that I'm helping that to happen for her. Not for my own personal gain, but for hers. Anybody ever been confused in Scripture when God says, I am a jealous God? Well, geez, that sounds awfully petty of you, Lord. No. He's not jealous for his own sake. He is jealous for his sons and daughters. He is jealous to see you live a good life. He's jealous to see you live a prosperous life. He's jealous to see you do well. So that's what's being said here. When we look at it, we see now how Paul uses it as do not be caught up with jealous envy and strife. And Christ uses it to say, I am so jealous for your affections that I would rather you be cold than lukewarm. Commentators throughout the years have debated this. How could God say that? How could Jesus say he would rather people completely deny his existence than say, yeah, I'm a Christian, and do nothing with it? And I can tell you how. As a youth pastor, you give me a kid who says, I'm an atheist, I'm a devout atheist, God is stupid, this is stupid, your songs are stupid, I only come here because they make me, I'll take that kid any day over the church kids who show up every Sunday for the last 10 years and do nothing with their life for Christ. I couldn't tell them apart if we weren't at church. If I went to them and I snuck up on them at school, they would be freaked out. Trust me, I've done it. It's a blast. I grab a... A little thing, I go and stand on the lunch line, and then I sit down with, next to my, one of my youth kids at school. Like, what? Oh my gosh, you know, and they're putting away whatever they shouldn't have. So that's really what it looks like. And God says, yeah, because here's the deal. When you're cold, you're closer to knowing me than when you're lukewarm. Because when you're lukewarm, you think you have it all together. When you're lukewarm, you believe you're already there. You've already arrived. At least the person who's cold knows that they don't have it. Their eyes are not open to it. And once I open their eyes, it will be such a stark difference between the reality they were living to the one I'm providing that they will be instantly hot. You ever wonder how people uh, uh, 
People addicted to drugs, people addicted to anything that ruins your life, that when they find the Lord, I mean really find the Lord, that they just seem like they're on fire for Him. Because they recognize the stark reality that where they were heading compared to the reality that Christ is offering, and it's beautiful to them. Now the reason Laodicea had fallen into such a trap is because they were a brilliant community. Well-educated, well-funded, smart people, ambitious people. And when you fall into that trap of being brilliant, of being well-off, you fall into a place where it becomes very difficult to rely and trust in a God. You begin to believe you have all the answers, the medicines, and the money you'll ever need. As a result... There's no jealousy for God. There's no zeal. There's no intimacy, passion, joy, wonder. Our world wants science to prove everything. Because if we can prove everything, then we take any of the wonder out of it. There needs to be no mythology, no questions. We just, we've got it all. Here's the answer, right? The other reason I would take somebody who's cold over somebody who is lukewarm is people who are lukewarm become very offended when you question their Christian beliefs. And I realize by saying that I may have offended some of you, and I'm sorry, not sorry. Hashtag sorry, not sorry. You become offended. I remember the first year I took this ethics class with this professor who I would end up taking four or five more classes through with him. He, his job at the beginning was to find the Christians in the class and then press every pressure point they had. And the Christians, the lukewarm Christians, responded beautifully to it. He would say something like, anybody heard of the myth of Jesus Christ? Hand goes up. Jesus Christ isn't a myth. He's my Lord and Savior. Okay. He's your Lord and Savior, huh? So you know he was born of a virgin? How do you do that? Immaculate conception through the Holy Spirit? Really? How does that work? Do you know anybody else? Is that logical? Is that something we can prove? Is that something we can set down? And he would begin to tear apart these kids' arguments one by one until they were angry and seething. And you don't get it. And you don't understand. One of them said, you're going to hell. This guy's actually a Christian. Because you take somebody who's lukewarm. And I'm not talking about a hypocrite. Let me make that point. A hypocrite is someone who is saying one thing and doing another, Right? A husband cheating on his wife, uh, stealing money from your work, and saying you're a Christian, coming to church, abusing your children, and, and coming to the church and looking all proper, that's a hypocrite. You see, a lukewarm Christian doesn't look like that. A lukewarm Christian knows all the answers, has said the right prayers, comes to church, does the right thing, and yet God is not God of their life. It's the one place they won't give him. They won't give him his complete trust. They won't give him their complete emotion and passion about what they're living for. And that's why it's actually easy to spot a lukewarm Christian if you're looking for him, but if you're not, they blend in with everybody else because they're doing what everybody else is doing. And so I remember those kids in that class, and I remember watching that, and I remember very early, I'm going to keep my mouth shut. And for five years, I did. And to my credit, I believe it's what helped give me such a solid foundation is this guy was trying to teach kids who grew up in the church 
who believed their mom and dad's religion but had no foundation for why they believed what they believed. Doesn't the Bible tell us to be ready in season and out of season to give an answer in defense of our faith? So why did we lose that along the way? Why is it so scary to give an answer in defense of our faith beyond I had an experience, I had a conversion experience? I hope you have a lot more than that. So that's the symptoms. Here's the disease. First, let's look at the city of Laodicea. It was a textile center. Clothes were made there, and they had these sheep with black wool, and they would spin them and weave them and get this beautiful sheen out of the clothing like silk, and it was rare and gorgeous, and so from all over, people would buy this uh, clothing. And uh, second, it was a financial center, so wealthy that when it was devastated by an earthquake in 60 A.D., the city of Laodicea did not go to Rome for help. Everybody went to Rome for help, right? When a natural disaster or you were attacked by an enemy, you went to Rome for help. Rome was the epicenter of the world. They had all the wealth, and they would help out the other small cities. They were devastated by an earthquake, and they said, we don't need your help. We will rebuild on our own, and they did. It's actually quite impressive. They were so wealthy. They were incredibly intelligent. They said, we can save ourselves. And why it's, why it's Jesus is being a bit ironic. You got to love. If you're ever wondering, is Jesus sarcastic? Let me just, yeah, he's super sarcastic. He says, you think you're well clothed. You think you're rich and healthy and that you can see when, you, when you're actually naked, wretched, poor, and blind. Like super burn, right? Here you think you can save yourself. You think you're so smart and you're actually poor, wretched, naked, and blind. So what does the Bible mean when it says you're spiritually naked? Nakedness is a metaphor for guilt and shame. Remember Adam and Eve in the garden when they hid? They weren't just shameful and hiding because they were physically naked and found out. They were shameful and hiding because they recognized for the first time the nakedness of where they were spiritually. So that's what nakedness is, uh, spiritual nakedness is. The second is uh, spiritual poverty. When the Bible talks about being spiritually poor, it's basically impotence. You can't change your condition. There is nothing you can do. There's no amount of thinking or willpower. You are stuck where you are stuck. That is spiritual poverty, unable to change your condition spiritually. Can't change the guilt or anything. Lastly, spiritual blindness. It means apart from the Holy Spirit, you can't even know you're guilty or insufficient. Now, this one should rock some of your worlds. This one's like, wait a minute. Without the Holy Spirit, I can't even know I'm guilty so I can come to Him to ask for repentance? Yeah, that's what it means to be spiritually blind. That's why I get frustrated at Christians who start debates with non-Christians or people who are completely opposed to the Bible, and they use Scripture, and they get mad, and they get heated back and forth, whether in person or on social media, because it's like trying to tell someone who is blind to explain the color blue. Well, explain it! I'm looking at it! I'm looking at it! It's right there, and you aren't explaining it right! And they're trying to explain it to you, and they've never seen it. And you can't even know you're blind unless the Holy Spirit shows you you are. That's how destitute you are without Him. And that's why Jesus is saying, you make me nauseous when you're lukewarm. Because when you're lukewarm, you don't appreciate or recognize the gift you have in Him. So Jesus says, in spite of how well-clothed you are, in spite of how rich you are, in spite of how healthy and, and 
you are spiritually before God, you are absolutely naked, absolutely poor, and absolutely blind. And you need salvation by sheer grace. You're a sinner before the throne of God, and you need His grace, and there's no other recourse for you. This is what Jesus is saying to the church. I know you're wealthy. I know you have it all together. But before me, none of that will buy you anything. And friends, if you haven't seen the connection yet, when you're really smart, when you're really accomplished, and you make lots of money, it is difficult to say, I know I'm a sinner saved by grace. It's difficult to say, I rely solely on the Lord. I rely solely on Him to uphold me. America is today's modern Laodicea, the American church. We are so well fed, we are so well clothed, sheltered, financed, that even the poorest of the poor in this country would be wealthy anywhere else in the world virtually. And it is difficult in that situation. Hear me. It is difficult to trust in a God and be on fire and be hot and and earnest and zealous for a God who has saved you because you're thinking, what did you save me from? You weren't there when I needed that job and I begged you for it. You weren't there when my son or daughter had the sickness and now they're gone. You weren't there. And it's difficult to humble yourself before him. And this is why he's speaking. And when I read this, I realized that if we're going to be a church that serves, if LifePoint is going to be a church of eight, nine hundred adults and three to four hundred kids, if we're going to be a church that impacts this greater valley here that we're in, we have to be hot. We have to be zealous for who God is. Because if we continue to be lukewarm and warm a chair and show up to an event that meets our needs but we don't do much else, we will fail. I don't care how much money we tithe. I don't care how many missions we support. If, if locally we are not on fire for the Lord, we are just like the church in Laodicea. And it burns my heart to know that God would look at us with all that we're offering up and say, you make me nauseous and I will spit you out of my mouth. Martin Luther King Jr., we celebrated his, uh, his day here uh, on Monday. And in a letter he wrote from Birmingham jail, he wrote this. I just want to read this. There was a time when the church was very powerful. In the time when the early Christians rejoiced at being deemed worthy to suffer for what they believed. In those days, the church was not merely a thermometer that recorded the ideas and principles of popular opinion... It was a thermostat that transformed the mores of society. Small in number, they were big in commitment. They were too God-intoxicated to be intimidated. Do you catch that line? This guy was a poet. They were too intoxicated on what it meant to serve a God who has released them from bondage to be intimidated by anybody who would come against them. That is zeal. He goes on, by their effort and example, they brought an end to such ancient evils as infanticide and gladiatorial contests. Did you know that? Did you know that it was Christian followers, a small minority that brought an end to those things? Killing unwanted children? How far have we fallen from that, America? That we could stand and say that it's okay today when our early brothers and sisters put an end to what was a common practice then in a barbaric time. 
Things are different now. But the judgment of God is upon the church as never before. If today's church does not recapture the sacrificial spirit of the early church, it will lose its authenticity, forfeit the loyalty of millions, and be dismissed as an irrelevant social club with no meaning for the 20th century. Every day I meet young people whose disappointment with the church has turned into outright disgust. How many decades ago did he write this? Guy is spot on. There's a lukewarmness about us, especially those of us who are in affluent societies, and it's based on pride and self-sufficiency. And we'll close with this. Here's the medicine. At the end, Dr. Jesus says in verse 18, I counsel, which means I prescribe, and he gives four things. The first medicine he prescribes is to grasp that your salvation is by grace and grace alone. He says, grasp my gracious gracious salvation. Get from me a white robe and gold that does not fade and spiritual sight. When he says, get from me, that phrase from me is very important. Remember in the earthquake, they didn't need help from anybody else. They were self-sufficient. And Christ says, no, you must ask. You must humble yourself to get from me this grace of salvation. In the book of Revelation, a white robe is considered an acceptable life, a life cleansed of sin for what Jesus did on the cross. It's forgiveness. It's pardon. The gold, that's status before God. Everybody is looking to clothe their nakedness, their shame, with their job or their worth or their wealth or how good their spouse looks. We're all looking to clothe who we are. And Christ says, I offer you a white garment to cleanse you of every wrong ever done or ever will do. But it's not by any works. It's not by being a better person. It's by my grace alone. Secondly is this. He prescribes, and unfortunately this one comes up a lot, but he says if you want to get out of lukewarmness into a jealousy and a zeal for God, then in, in the Scripture it says the gold I'm going to give you is refined by fire, then expect your life to be refined by fire. Expect to go through a bit of suffering. Expect to have trials of all sorts and know that he will bring you out the other end pure. Know that he will bring you out the other end refined. Do not get angry. Do not turn your back on him. Do not question God. Do not leave the church. Understand that you are being refined. Poor Josh Miles is being refined. I love you, brother, wherever you're at. He has been sick. He has hurt his back. There has just been one thing after another. He finally gets an injection in his neck, and he's not feeling the pain anymore, and he gets back-to-back strep throat. And all I said to him was, brother, God is doing something in your life. Like, this is not natural. Science says this shouldn't have happened. He's being refined. And there's a grace in it. And why so many of you love him and love talking with him and being counseled by him is because there is a grace in his life. And I tell you, people who have lived a charmed life do not have the grace that Josh has. People who have allowed themselves to be refined by the fire do. Finally, this. A father rebukes, chastens, and disciplines those he loves. He loves us. He says, you disgust me, you nauseate me, I look at your life and I see nothing good, but that doesn't change my loving purposes for you. I love you. And so I will discipline you and guide you back onto the right path. 
And the most amazing thing of all is in the last thing he says in the letter, I will give you the right to sit with me on my throne. I will give you the right to sit with me on my throne. Why is Jesus ruling the world? Because he earned it. We say it in the Apostles' Creed. He was crucified, dead, and buried. And on the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven, and he sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. We're going to start a series in two weeks on the Apostles' Creed. Twelve-week series, taking it line by line. As we understand what it means to be hot, to be passionate and zealous for the Lord. Why is he ruling the world? Because he earned it. Why do we need to go to him for these things? Do you know why you get to go to him to get a white rope? Because he was stripped naked and hung on a cross. Do you know why you get to go to him to have spiritual wealth? Because he became completely and utterly impoverished for you. For you. Do you know why you get to go to him to have sight and no longer be blind? Because as they were crucifying him, they put a blindfold on him. And as they beat him, they said, prophesy who hit you. Remember that? Prophesy who hit you. He became naked so we could be clothed. He became poor so we could be rich. And he became blind so that we could see he's been there and he did it because he loves you. And whether you're here this morning and you've been in the church your whole life and you recognize and you have the ability, and I've been praying all week the Holy Spirit would do this, give you the ability to be honest with yourself and say, I am. I'm spiritually lukewarm. And I want to be on fire. Because where this church is going in the, this year and the years to come is a place that if you're lukewarm, it is going to bother you. It is going to be difficult. It is going to be frustrating. But if you're on fire for the Lord, it is going to be an incredible ride. And so we're going to close a service like this. Part of being on fire for the Lord is coming and saying, Lord, I'm not ashamed to tell you who I am. I'm not ashamed to admit my need for repentance, rebuke, my need for you. And so I'm going to invite you to come to the front of the stage. Whether you're hot, whether you're cold, if you're cold in here tonight or this morning, and you say, I'm cold. I've never believed in it, but the Lord's doing something in my heart right now, and I want whatever that is. And I want to invite you to come up. The band will be up on stage. Nobody else will stand. You won't be able to slip out, you know, unseen. I would say who's going to be the brave one to come up first, but it's little old Patty. God love Patty. Patsy. Pat. But come up, fill the stage. If the stage is full, stand behind somebody who's there. We're going to commit to the Lord that we will not be lukewarm, that Life Point Church will not be a place that will go silently and, and, and just do its church thing while the government tells us that we, we can't share the love of Christ, that we can't love others. And you go ahead and you come and you kneel at this altar if you feel called to. But if you're going to make this call, then understand you're saying before the Lord, Lord, I will be zealous for you. I will be jealous for you, for your name's sake, not for my own comfortability or my own life. I encourage you, get up. I can tell you from experience the day that my wife and I said, Lord, 
I'm tired of being somebody who just sits in the background. And you may lose some stuff. We lost a house and cars and possessions and income. And it made me realize, as Jeff Payne said this morning, it was all worthless compared to the life the Lord has brought us. Lord God, you see your sons and daughters gathered around. You've heard their cries for the last five minutes to say, Lord, take away this lukewarm spiritual life that I have created and create in me a fire, Lord. Create in me a recognition of what you've done, Lord. Lord, I believe that this time is a sweet incense that rises up to you. And your children humble themselves and repent. And if you're in that place this morning where you said, Lord, I want your garments. I want your gold. I want your sight. I'm tired of trying to find it my way. I encourage you to pray this prayer with me. Lord, my beliefs are incomplete. My service is tainted with selfishness. And my affection for you is cold. My repentance is half-hearted at times. And my best deeds compared to your holy standards are unacceptable garments. Jesus, you died the death that I owed. And you lived the life I owed. Welcome me and love me for your sake, O Lord. Father, drive out. Drive out, O Lord, the junk from our lives. That we would long for you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.